0: welcome to indy matters the podcast from the nevada independent i'm your host joey lovato
1: and i'm your co-host jacob solis
0: oh my god jacob the two of us haven't co-hosted together in a little while welcome to the show oh uh,
1: thanks joey i'm
0: back he's For back because i'm going on vacation <laughs> He's going on vacation right after this. (laughs) Well, anyway, you and me are also chatting today about a story that you've been following about the Nevada System of Higher Education Chancellor Selection, which has gotten more complicated than we expected. Then later in the show, I'm chatting with Gabby Bierenbaum, our DC reporter, about some goings on in the coming election. And at the end of the show, Alex Kuro is going to be chatting with our new intern, Eric Nugeborn, about his time covering a Trump event in Las Vegas. All right, Jacob, we're chatting about higher education today, your favorite topic. It's also your job. That's right. It is my job. Thanks for noticing, Joey. <laughs> and to start off, there's a new selection of an N.C. chancellor. she is the Nevada System of Higher Education, the governing board of all higher ed entities in the state. What is the chancellor before we get into that? What
1: does the chancellor do? So you can think of the chancellor like a CEO. They are the ones who are taking direction from various places, be it the Board of Regents, which is the sort of elected board that's in charge of higher ed, the buck stops with the regents, and then the presidents, right, who are in charge of each of the institutions, your university presidents, your college presidents. The chancellor sits in between them, mediates between them and makes sure that all the edicts they get actually happen.
0: Got it. And there's supposed to be a new chancellor. The old one has
1: left, correct? In about April of last year, the previous permanent chancellor, Melody Rose, left after a pretty severe dip- dispute with the Board of Regents that ended with a $610,000 severance and outside investigation. It was a whole thing. We won't get into that here. Please look up our reporting on the nevadaindependent.com. So what ended up happening there is the regents wanted an acting chancellor who could just get them through the legislative session this year. So they appointed a guy, Dealer Kiaga, former Sandoval administration did everything. He used to be the head of the state's K twelve system, so they brought him in to just to be sort of a legislative expert for a year, and then he was going to leave. He never, and he said this when they appointed him, he was not going to stay. So earlier this year, the Regents commissioned a full search for a new permanent chancellor, the first permanent chancellor we've had in more than a year, and so that search starts to conclude at the end of last month, and they bring in three finalists, and then they were supposed to appoint one of those finalists the actual permanent chancellor, but that did not happen.
0: It didn't happen because they didn't like any of the candidates. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. So I'm going to try and explain this as concisely as I can. But basically, it's a two-step process where you have the search committee and then the full board of regents. So the search committee hired a third-party search firm to go out into the country and find people who could be chancellor. That search firm brings back three candidates, among them Kate Marshall, who is a former Democratic lieutenant governor under Steve Sisolak, for anyone who might remember, it brings back a man named Lawrence Drake, who is the interim president of a small, historically black college in Florida, Bethune-Cookman. And then Charles Ansell, who is a, a research vice president at a group called Complete College America. So these are the three people who come back and the search committee basically has an advisory panel within the committee, which is just like a bunch of faculty, students, your professors, presidents, former presidents, just a bunch of people who would know what they want in a chancellor. And that advisory committee interviews all of these finalists. They do a bunch of work with those three people. And they tell the subcommittee of the regents, half of them were like, I kind of like Drake. I kind of like Ansel. No one said Kate Marshall. And then the other half say we should just fail the search these three people do not have the nevada specific experience nor the higher education specific experience that the chancellor needs and we don't want to have to find a new chancellor in a year or two years again so we simply cannot move forward with these three candidates but the subcommittee moved forward anyways they said no we actually like Lawrence Drake, the guy from florida we're going to recommend him to the full board and we're going to vote tomorrow. But the writing was already on the wall, right? The advisory committee wasn't so sure about this. Even one of the regents, they only voted four to one to recommend this guy in the first place. And so once it makes it to the full board, the whole thing collapsed.
0: So they didn't pick a chancellor. So what now? Who is the acting chancellor, the interim chancellor still in charge or or is there just no chancellor?
1: Yeah, so technically when they were supposed to appoint this new chancellor, they had about 35 days left on the ac- current acting chancellor, Deleurke Kiaga's contract. So he's leaving in that first week of August. So theoretically they still have until that first week of August to appoint an interim chancellor. And they will. They're, they have a meeting scheduled later this month. We fully expect that they're going to have somebody Interim chancellor in mind.
0: So they didn't love the three candidates that were brought forward, but are there any other names floating around that you've heard for people thinking about who could be this interim chancellor or potentially a a longer term candidate? Yeah, if anyone
1: watching this is into drama, this is where it appears. When the regents did not vote for Lawrence Drake to be the permanent chancellor, immediately they cast a new motion to appoint an interim chancellor, but the regent who did it, actually had a name. She said, I would like to appoint the UNLV provost, Chris Heavey, as the interim chancellor. And this blew up. Immediately, everyone got very mad. The people who wanted to vote for Lawrence Drake said, did you plan this all along? Did you always want to scuttle the search? Was this, were you colluding to make sure that this failed? Because it should be noted, like they were this close. I'm putting my fingers very close together. They were this close to hiring Lawrence Drake. They had a $450,000 annual contract laid out. They were going to give this guy $10,000 to move to Nevada. Like they had negotiated all all of this with him specifically in advance, and it still fell apart. And so the people who wanted Drake to come were very mad. Now, the thing is, is that Heavey is a longtime administrator at UNLV. People like him. He's, by all accounts, does a good job with the sort of academics. And frankly, in the last five years, UNLV has become a high research university. It's really leaned into its pivot towards research as a goal. And so I think people really like Heavey as someone who knows Nevada, who knows the system, who knows a large institution and can handle the sort of weird idiosyncrasies of NSHI, the Nevada system of higher education. But, and this is speaking before we've seen an agenda, before we've actually heard a name, who they want to appoint, I think it's going to be difficult for Heavey to get away from the fact that his name got brought up in this sort of disastrous meeting where they didn't appoint a chancellor. And if he is eventually appointed, and we don't know that he will be, right, I'm just putting this out there, that he is probably going to have to answer some questions from regents who were very upset a week and a half ago about this whole thing.
0: So if they didn't think that Drake, the one guy from Florida that they were... Considering didn't have enough experience, what are they looking for?
1: Yeah, and I think that's the million-dollar question. No one has super specified, but I did talk to a couple former chancellors about what they thought makes a successful chancellor. And I think the main thing is that they want someone who has experience with a large, complex institution, and they want someone who has experience dealing with elected officials. And those are really the two big ones, because, frankly, one of the chancellor's main jobs is talking to the regents. I talked to a former chancellor, Tom Riley. He told me, is like, when you're chancellor, if you want anything done, you have to be able to count to seven. You have to be able to count to a majority of the members of that board and make sure not just that they want to do what you want to do, but that they understand what you're trying to do, because an elected board may not have the expertise that an appointed board have.
0: All right, Jacob, we'll leave it there for now, but I'm sure you'll be following this as it continues to play out. And with that, it's nice to be back chatting with you on the pod, and I'll see you in the outro.
1: Good to be back, Joey. I'll see you in the outro. All
0: right, Gabby, welcome to the show. We're going from higher education to higher politics. I don't know. That doesn't doesn't sound right. Federal politics or federal races. Or federal
2: office. This is is a mess.
0: This is a mess of an intro. It's okay. We're keeping it in. I always start with the the weather. So we will go there first and then we'll come back and talk about Sam Brown. But how is the weather in D.C. right now on this July afternoon?
2: I'm actually not in D.C. right now. I'm visiting. I was visiting some family friends over the weekend in Arkansas where it's hot, but not unbearably so.
0: Nice. It is lovely, warm, like 85 degrees here in Reno. So a nice summer afternoon. Nice. (laughs) And uh, speaking of the summer afternoon, this summer afternoon, Sam Brown is going to be announcing his run. For Senate, so let's talk about that. He's tell you a little bit about Sam Brown. What's his history here in Nevada?
2: Yeah, so Sam Brown has never held elected office before, but this is not his first time running. So he ran. He first ran in the Republican primary for Senate in 2022 and lost to Adam Laxalt. But he did seem to make a name for himself in Nevada as he's an Army veteran. He was wounded overseas on a tour of duty in Afghanistan um, and suffered severe burns. He had to do a ton of rehab and a ton of PT. That was in like the mid-2010s. But since then, he ran for state legislature in Texas unsuccessfully and then moved to the Reno area in 2018, where he's since gotten involved in Nevada politics, has a PAC, and also was a small businessman delivering emergency medicine to veterans outside of the VA through the private sector. Hmm. So he's most known, I think, for his military service. But we'll see on the campaign trail over the next year what he chooses to emphasize about his background and what policies he wants to pursue and how that military service plays into what he's looking to do as a senator.
0: Yeah. And he's kind of been discussed as kind of up and coming Republican. So is he seen as the candidate that's probably going to win the primary here for Republicans to go up against Jackie Rosen?
2: I think it's hard to say. I mean, he definitely has the institutional backing of national Republicans. So he has the backing of the NRSC, the National Republican Senatorial Committee which is run by a sitting senator, Steve Daines, and just means that national Republicans are gonna help him fundraise and they want him to be the candidate. So he'll definitely get a big fundraising boost from that. On the other hand, we do have another major candidate declared, which is Jim Marchant, who has been on the ballot before. He ran for secretary of state in the last cycle. He has close relationships with a lot of the state party apparatus at his launch event. Both the chairs of the Clark County and the Washoe County GOPs were there. So he definitely has that in-state presence has a big base, likely among the same people who make up Donald Trump's base. They remain close, and Marchand has remained pretty loyal to Trump. And then there's some other names who could join. Jeffrey Ross Gunter, who was the ambassador to Iceland under Trump, could join. And he has the ability to potentially self-finance or draw some big donors. There's a candidate named Stephanie Phillips who's running, who's gotten some support from some Republican-aligned groups. So I don't know that he has it wrapped up per se, particularly given that Marchant has that strong base of support. I don't know if it's big enough to win a primary. But I think national Republicans certainly think that Sam Brown would be the most electable candidate in a general election, which is why they're going to be boosting him throughout the primary.
0: And what is Sam's kind of brand of politics? Does he fall under the Trump camp or is he more of a traditional Republican or, or you know, what what is he kind of representing for Republicans?
2: I think it's hard to know. And I think that's what we're going to be looking to find out, especially in these early few months of his campaign. In 2022, he ran sort of as a right wing challenger to Adam Laxalt. So even though they had a lot of the same opinions, they're both firmly supportive of the Second Amendment, against abortion. He attacked Laxalt from the right on things like alleged election fraud, said that as Attorney General, Laxalt didn't pursue an election fraud case that he should have. He's against government spending, as most Republicans are, wants to, he said in 2022, he wants to cut a few federal agencies, was against the teaching of critical race theory in schools, which is a big conservative talking point. So I think it'll be interesting to see in this next campaign, as the presumed front runner. Um, And with someone like Jim Marchand already established in that right wing lane, whether he takes a more moderate tone. And I think even just in his launch statement, when he talked about serving in the military and how no one in the military asks what your party is, they just ask if you can get the job done. I think we might already be seeing that he might be going for a more moderate lane. But it's hard to tell. And it's hard to tell if that brand of politics can get you through a Nevada Republican primary. We'll find out. And so will he.
0: Let's just jump ahead a few months and assume that in a, in a theoretical world that he wins the primary and we'll go up against Jackie Rosen. What does that look like? How does that play out at this point?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think we saw the main thing to note. We saw in the Cortez Masto versus Laxalt race that funding fundraising was a major difference in the race. So Cortez Masto outspent Laxalt, I think it was, or outraised three to one. And so right now, the numbers that Jackie Rosen's early, but the fundraising numbers that she's posting are right in line with what Cortez Masto is doing. She has a record $7.5 million in cash on hand going into this next quarter. So I think we can safely assume that she'll be just as prolific a fundraiser as Cortez Masto or in that neighborhood. And so I think for Sam Brown, it'll be a question of can he get that donor support and get that fundraising support to get closer uh, to Rosen's figure? Even with that spending discrepancy, Laxalt still lost by less than a point. And about as a purple state, it'll definitely be a close race. And I think the question is, can Brown raise enough to be potentially more competitive with Rosen than Laxalt was with Cortez Masto, which was already quite competitive.
0: So the one thing that we do know about this Senate race is that Rosen will be running. She's the incumbent, so they're gonna, she's going to keep running. Let's talk a little bit about her since we're talking about this race. What is she running on? What's her re-election campaign going to look like?
2: Yeah, I think the number one thing for Jackie Rosen right now is that we've showed in our polling that we've conducted that she has some room to grow in terms of name recognition in the state and the people who have no opinion of her, which makes sense. She hasn't been in cycle for at this point, almost five years. So she needs to reintroduce and reestablish herself with voters. And I think there are a number of topics in which she's already signaled that that's how she wants to define herself. Abortion is definitely going to be huge. She wants to, and Democrats across the state, want to keep abortion top of mind for voters. They feel like it really powered them in 2022, and they want it to do so again in 2024. So she'll be looking to draw a distinction between her and any Republican opponent. Nevada just got that big grant, over $400 million for broadband funding, that's something that she was really proud of and I'm sure will tout on the campaign trail. And then she has been a big defender of the solar industry in the Senate as well. So I imagine those will be the main totems of her platform.
0: All right, cool. Gabby, we'll leave it there for now. And I'm sure we'll be following all of these races closely as we move ever closer to election season. I feel like we just left the legislature and we're already into elections, but we'll be touching base on all this stuff pretty frequently moving forward. So thanks so much. Enjoy the humid and breezy Arkansas air and we'll (laughs) talk more soon.
2: (laughs) Thank you, Joey. I'm sure we will.
3: Alex here, and today I am sitting down with our newest intern who is out in Vegas right now. He started in June, and his name is Eric i
4: Hi, happy to be here.
3: Yeah, we're really excited to have you on the podcast and as a part of the Indy team. If you want to start by just telling us a little bit about yourself.
4: Yeah, so I just graduated from the University of Maryland. I studied journalism and political science. And I am just really interested in political reporting. Last summer, I was in DC with the Texas Tribune, and I also have had some other internships on Capitol Hill covering politics for a local audience. And I just really admire the ND. I like nonprofit journalism a lot. So when the opportunity for the internship came up, I decided to apply.
3: Yay. We're so happy you did apply here at the ND. You're a great asset to our team. And I know that you are originally from Washington, D.C., but I guess I just want to know, how are you liking Vegas as opposed to D.C.?
4: I like it a lot so far. I didn't really know what I was getting myself into because I'd never been to Nevada before I moved here. And I like it a lot. I think my perception of Vegas was just like the stereotype Las Vegas strip, but there's a lot more to the city than that. So it's been nice exploring. And the heat has not been as bad as I thought, actually. I'm used to the humid D.C. summer heat. So it's been nice to have some dry heat.
3: Speaking of Vegas, you did recently have a story about Trump and he did visit our state of Nevada. Do you want to talk about that a little bit?
4: Yeah. So former President Trump went to Nevada for the first time this past week or first time this election cycle. And he did a quick event at a church in the north Las Vegas area. And it was described as a volunteer recruitment event. There were some volunteer recruitment efforts, but it was much more a typical Trump speech. It wasn't as big as a normal rally. There were only about 500 people there because of occupancy limits. At least 400 couldn't make it inside the venue. So about half the people who were there actually got in the doors. But it was the typical run-of-the-mill Trump experience. There was a lot of lobbying attacks on other people, a lot of resorting to his usual policy positions, specifically about the election security. So yeah, it was very interesting to see him in person for the first time and also talk to some supporters of his.
3: As far as some of those people that you talked to, do you have anything that stands out?
4: There were a few interesting people. They personified what it meant to be a Trump supporter. One person said he changed his last name to Trump legally. I don't know if that's true, but there were several people who were with him that said their last name was Trump, which I found very interesting. And he just described how Trump is the only person who can save this country. And that was the theme throughout the conversations I had, that he is the one who can save this country from what they described as a ruinous future. Very interesting to see that personified in a few people.
3: Thank you for doing that reporting. It was great. Mm-hmm. And speaking also, I know you're from D.C. And mm-hmm. Mon- your political game over there than in Nevada. So what has drawn you to doing state reporting as opposed to more national?
4: Yeah, yeah. It's a good question because a lot when I tell people that I'm interested in political reporting and then tell them that I really want to get out of D.C., people are confused. But like I said, I had a few internships in covering D.C. politics and I learned a lot and it was really interesting. And I especially like that I was writing for local outlets. But I Just got the sense that everyone, or a lot of the reporters there, especially when you're getting started, you're chasing the same story. You are going after the same senators, writing about similar topics that everyone else is writing. There's a lot bigger focus in D.C. journalism about the process rather than the policy, at least among certain outlets. So I wanted to get out of the D.C. bubble, at least for a little bit, and get a sense of what politics is looking at more on the state level because state legislators are becoming even more powerful over time. And I think they are undercovered. So I wanted to see what that was about, see what trends I'm observing in politics on the state level and how they reflect themselves nationally.
3: I definitely agree with you there, Eric. I think that coverage in rural areas or in smaller state legislatures is definitely... Underreported. And just to close us out here, Eric, I know you are working on a story now that's set to come out about Smart 21. So, what is that exactly?
4: It's the state's human resource and finance systems. State employees have been using really outdated systems, and lawmakers were pretty much in agreement that they needed to be replaced and updated. The state, over the years, has spent tens of millions of dollars on this project. They first appropriated money for the project in 2013, and the project was essentially a complete failure. So it's been very interesting to look into.
3: And we know our listeners will be looking out for that, definitely. Thank you for your time and welcome to our team.
4: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We want to thank Gabby Bierenbaum,
0: Alex Kuro, and Eric Nugaboran for being on the show today. This show is produced and edited by me, Joey Lovato, and Alex Kuro, with additional help from Michelle Rendell's and Jacob Solis. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. You can also email us at podcast at the NB
1: Our theme song is from Emily Pratt, and we have additional music from Storyblocks, June
0: Pearson, Tom Fox, and Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm your co-host, Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. Oh, my allergies are bad today.
1: My allergies? Just suddenly. Last night killed me I was fine and then I was not
0: fine because you moved back to Vegas no they're punishing you
1: I was good for a little bit there